What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com, but you can also head over to our YouTube channel, title is Blister Review, to check out all of our Blister Summit videos that we are rolling out every single week. And there are some absolutely incredible and important and hilarious conversations that we're posting from our panel sessions, and also just a ton of information about a bunch of next year's product. And today, here on Gear 30, we are talking about powder ski design. And to be real clear, we are not talking about the types of skis that you would be breaking out all that many times in a given season. I mean, maybe unless your name is Paul Forward, but we're talking about the skis that are best for your biggest skiing dreams, the deepest days out there. And what inspired this episode are a series of conversations that I had with Folsom Custom Skis' Mike McCabe and our trip to Alaska that we just got back from. So lots more about that trip in this conversation and a whole lot more about the design philosophies behind skis intended for the deepest of days. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by our blister-recommended shop, Outdoor Gear Exchange, located in Burlington, Vermont. And so whether you are out there still touring and trying to find good snow, or you are camping or climbing or backpacking, or interested in pretty much any outdoor activity, Outdoor Gear Exchange is a place you need to know. So stop in to OGE the next time you're in the Burlington area, and you can always head over to GearX.com to check out everything that they've got going on online. Finally, just before we get started here, I want to make sure that you are aware that registration is open for our next Blister Summit here in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. So if you would like to come out here to Crested Butte and test out all kinds of new skis and snowboards and boots and apparel and more, or if you like the sound of going skiing with Hoji or our guest today, Mike McCabe from Folsom, or maybe you just want to meet sexy Luke in person, well, any and all of those dreams of yours will come true at the Blister Summit, and right now, you can get the absolute best price on the Blister Summit by registering now. The dates are February 4th through the 8th, 2024, and we will leave a link to the registration page in the show notes of this episode. And with that, let's now talk about and fantasize about deep snow and fat skis with Folsom's Mike McCabe. Here we go. Well, Mike McCabe, fancy talking to you again. Um, how are you today and where are you today? Yeah, good to talk to you again here, Jonathan. Hasn't been too long here, but uh, I'm down at my <laughs> my Denver headquarters manufacturing facility here and i'm doing fantastic enjoying a little pivot in weather down here it's been a little bit muggy and rainy and we're finally seeing a little breakthrough of some sun so it's a beautiful day all right happy to hear it so you and i 
just spent a number of days in the Chugach mountain range and turns out we skied a bunch of pow on a bunch of different fat skis and we had a bunch of conversations about those skis and a lot of ABCing and swapping around of those skis but then just a lot of conversations about pow ski design in general and um I know for a fact that Paul Forward is going to die the, given that it's just the two of us now having this conversation and he's not in on this one. So, Paul, we promise we're going to invite you back to get your vast experience and your many opinions on this topic. Uh, we'll, we'll throw you in here. But for now, I think one of the most interesting things to me about our time in Alaska was how frequently you were saying like, okay, I'm just in a different set of conditions here that's really getting me rethinking some thoughts on design. And that's really what I wanted to do here today is, is kind of be like, all right, well, give us a bit of the download on what was either new to you or has you curious, or maybe you've doubled down on some principles that you've always held. So that's kind of our work here today. But to then get us started, I wanted to just ask kind of in general, what were maybe two or three of the things that you learned on this trip or you're now rethinking um, in terms of powder ski design? So I'd say really the most significant thing for me on this entire experience up in Alaska was first off, I've skied all over the world. I've skied all kinds of different soft snow conditions. I've seen all these variations across all these different areas. And I just haven't had the opportunity to be in Alaska. And, um, you know, I hate to say that I feel like I've kind of skied it all, but I certainly hadn't. And I was taught that in a really fast fashion. Once we got to Alaska, um, the snow is so variant from day to day, pitch to pitch, you know, especially when you have helicopter accessibility, you're just jumping around and moving terrain. So quickly things are changing at just a rapid fire pace. So that immediately kind of spun my just understanding of Powskis on its head. Um, you know, fundamentally a lot of people always just say, well, anything wide works well in soft snow. That's right. That is yep. <laughs> not true. That is so not true. Yeah. Um, the thing I kept saying, and I know I said this to you and a lot of the other folks that were on the trip and, and, uh, Paul a lot as well. It's just like, you really need to think about the fundamentals of how this thing is interacting in the snow, how that ski is really giving you feedback and reacting in the soft snow, um, which, Again, just all the versatility of that snowpack really just gave me a whole new understanding of of how wide Powski really needs to interact in all these different types of pow. That's probably the biggest, you know, educational piece for me is just seeing how variant it is and how drastically different types of Powskis can really have a much different output in your experience in that type of snow. So that really gave me just a different lens to be able to kind of look at how a, a Powski should be functioning there. Another thing that was really just probably the most eye-opening for me, secondarily to that, is flex patterns. You know, really, really soft skis in soft snow can be really fun in certain types, but it can also be a pretty big hindrance in other types. Um, and I figured that out pretty quickly 
trying some certain types of skis, specifically that K2 Palabunga, <laughs> which is notoriously very wide and very soft, um, you know, it reacted in a very strange way for me. And that was uh, uh, another big learning piece for me. Interesting. Well, we're, we're certainly going to be talking more about flex patterns as we go. So um, we'll pocket that for a minute. Got a third thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is something that um, I've really tried a lot of in the past and really kind of was able to put this piece to bed after this trip is length. And there's certainly kind of a threshold where length is just too long. Um, maybe some outlier people that are exceptionally, exceptionally tall could really be served by a ski over 200 centimeters long. But in general, in my frame and everybody that I was speaking to on this trip, guides included, you know, all, you know, six foot two and under, uh, not one of us wanted a ski that was over 195 centimeters in length back to the fact that that will interact very strangely in the snow. Um, so essentially you're just going to have a really long ski that's just feeling too much of the snow around it and you don't have as much control as you need on it. So, uh, I can definitely put that piece of, uh, uh, design kind of to bed and all those people that want me to design that 210 centimeter long mega wide ski. Sorry, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> hmm. So, but here's another thing that you were saying while we were out there so correct me if I got it wrong or whatever, but there were some times where you were like, I used to not believe certain people who said they needed to get mega wide on a ski. And I don't know, like, so now I want to hear you talk about what does mega wide mean and like what you maybe used to think was quote unquote plenty wide. And maybe after this trip, what you're now thinking about just in terms of the width question. Yeah, well, 100%. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I personally have really always thought very wide, let's say 130 millimeters or north of that underfoot is a completely unnecessary width. I've always thought that. Um, look back to my early design days all the way back in 2008 we designed a ski called the Super Chunk that was actually very similar to uh, the Fatipus Alata. Just a huge traditional mm -hmm. side cut. It was like 172, 135, you know, 150 something in the tail. And frankly, I hated that ski. I hated it. Every time I skied it, I just felt like it was just too supportive and just had a, you know, a strange interaction in soft snow. And so I kind of got that you know, lens on my eyes of like, you really don't need the super wide skis. And I know Paul Forward specifically has kind of been nudging me for a number of years of like, hey, Rapture's really good for most days up here, but there's a lot of conditions where we just need these ultra wide shapes. And I was kind of, eh, yeah, no, I, I think you're fine. You know, that ski's plenty supportive. And I can certainly say without any reasonable doubt after this trip, I am fully on board with the ultra wide skis. You really need them. Again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, the variant that we saw in this snowpack was bonkers and how deep you would interact in certain areas and how shallow you would act, interact in other areas was so different that you really needed all that mechanical advantage, uh, i.e. a really wide ski, more often than not up there. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it was just shocking to me how different that snow was 
Um, and I've spent so much time in Northern BC and all these other areas. And it was just yep. a whole different ball game up there, a whole different ball game. So yeah, the wide skis, that was another thing that, you know, egg was on my face. Sorry, Paul, <laughs> you were right. <laughs> well, and so maybe this is worth just saying a bit more about, because as you said, a lot of people will say, oh, but I mean, anything works in powder or anything is great in powder. And one of the bizarro things about <laughs> me and you and Paul Forward being out together on a trip like this is the constant amount of ski swapping that was going on. <laughs> it was this was this was not um it definitely wasn't sort of normal people type of thing, but um for for better or for worse. But none of us were like, wow, we can't tell any difference here or wow, we have no preference under these things. So I think people who are actually saying this stuff about, well, you know, anything or everything is good in POW. I wonder if they've actually spent time in deep snow, right? Now, a different thing to say is, can a good skier make anything work in any type of snow? Sure. Well, Almost yes. I don't know actually if some of the snow we were skiing, if you actually could have been out on a super stiff 68 millimeter wide sort of recreational. I, I don't actually know that you would have been able to move through snow, at least on certain iterations of a, you know, kind of uh, recreational race ski type yeah. of thing. I'm not actually sure about that because I had one run where I came to a dead stop on a pair of K2 Powabungas, right? So a 130 millimeter plus wide ski with an like huge rocker profile and a shape that I actually really like. Shape I really like. But um, so I, I just think that some of the the common things that people or skiers will throw around, it's actually just not true. No, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Um you know, could somebody make that style of ski work? Sure. Do you want to? Absolutely not. Is it going to put your, you know, knees and hips and other things in danger? Yeah. 100%. Um, again, you yeah. needed as much mechanical advantage as you could gain through that type of snowpack. Um, you know, one thing that Paul pointed out to me on one of the runs that really stuck with me and I think is really relatable to kind of paint a picture of what we were dealing with at certain times while we were up in the bird was we were skiing that one face. If you remember, there was a couple sled tracks that had been painted pretty near where we were. And Paul was kind of like, wow, I've never really seen sled up here. And we ended up putting down a bunch of tracks right next to it. And the snowmobile tracks and our human skiing tracks were literally indistinguishable. You could not tell which did which. And that should give you a pretty good illustration of how deep we were in that snowpack. You know, a 550-pound machine versus a 200-pound adult. That's a drastic mm -hmm. difference. And that really, would, you know, should give a pretty good illustration for how unique that snow was. And, you know, I, I, I can't agree with you more that, like, if you were on a stiff, you know, 6,800-foot kind of race-style ski and that sort of stuff, you'd be you'd be screwed. There's no way you'd be getting out of that stuff. Yeah. You would have had to come and maybe use one of those harnesses to snake you out of there. But Right. Or, or you would have to be so in the back seat, 
trying like hell to keep tips up out of the, uh, out of that snow that you would burn the hell out of your quads and on some of these runs when you're getting into 3000 or 4000 feet of vertical I, like this is a bit of what we're talking about like if if there's still some non-believers out there who think that we're just getting pretty silly in terms of the width of skis or length of skis that we're going to be talking about here, this is just, again, like identifying it's not a lot of places on earth, but there are certain places mm-hmm. where um, it is about the right tool for the job. And dude, there were certain days where certain long lines, you know, when I was on a ski that was just a, just 120 millimeters wide, I was still working to keep tips up mm-hmm. in some of the like some of the interesting snowpack where we did hit certain pockets of stuff where I was like, this is actually just perfect quintessential light blower Colorado snow. We had plenty of other runs where it was a bit more of that condensed, almost cream cheese, what I would kind of call perfect, um, like AK heli snow, mm-hmm. where you're not getting chest deep or waist deep. But then we skied a good bit of like this middle, like this tweener. Right. And I'm actually going to send you a, I'm going to send you a photo right now because I was like, they, our buddy Charlie Renfro, who, Incredible photographer, as well as being one of the best people I know. He sent me this photo and I was like, I don't know that I've actually ever seen ski tracks like this. I'm sending you this photo that Charlie took. Take a look at this. We'll include this in the show notes of the episode, but zoom in on this and take a look at this and take a look at these trenches. And I was like, I'm not really sure I've seen this before. What have you? No, no. I think, you know, and I, uh, there's a whole sequence of photos with me. This is you in this photo of the exact same stuff. And that was one of the first things that stuck out to me was like, look at the definition of those tracks. Look at how deep they are. And, you know, specifically look at your pole drag on that uh, right footer that you made right above the turn you're in. Look at that cut in the snow and look at how perfectly defined it is. And then yep. look at you and look at how soft that snow is. So it's something I've never seen ever, nothing I've ever experienced. And as you can imagine, that really gives for a very, you know, interesting experience on your ski because you are much deeper than you've ever been in snow. It's very light, but it's also got this, you know, density to it where it just holds its shape. And it's, it's really wild. Another thing that really threw me off on this, and you can actually see this quite well, in this photo, as you know, how the sun up in Alaska never really comes up overhead, at least this time of the year. It's just chasing the, the horizon. And so you're always skiing away from the sun or ideally kind of what you're shooting for, you know, while we were up there and you blow up these big powder clouds and you're just casting yourself back into dark. And you can actually see yeah. like, the first deep turn I'd made. I like literally stopped because I was like, oh, no, what's that? Oh, it's just my cloud. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I, I've never seen anything like that. And I do remember this was, um, on that run where Paul actually skied down and was digging a pit and he said he found seven feet of one fresh layer, seven feet. 
of one yeah. new layer in that. And we were, this was specifically, I remember this was specifically at the swell glacier. We were up into the, yep. I guess, uh, uh, south of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if that helps people maybe understand a bit more again paul ford is going to listen to this conversation and he's just going to be throwing things against the wall like guys i've been literally telling you this for over a decade so again apologies to paul we didn't believe you we thought you were just being a prima donna yep and sincere apologies um but um okay so here's then i guess another question exactly how specific or rare I mean, we just got done saying that you and I at least have aren't really sure we've ever been in snow like that, quite like that before. And this is kind of interesting to me because I often will fight back or push back when people try to be like, well, you guys aren't on the East Coast and East Coast snow or in the Southern Hemisphere or in Japan. And what I often say is like, if you spend a lot of time skiing and you have skied in different places, you can kind of end up seeing virtually, if not every single snow type in a lot of different places. I don't actually believe that there is complete geographic distinctness when it comes to snow. And yeah. and I and I guess I'm, you know, this is maybe one example where I'm like, well, actually this is for my own personal experience getting near to a pretty distinct experience on a snow type. But I'm trying to figure out how we go from there then in saying like, you know, we talked a lot about snow cat skiing where often I think it's a, it's not true across the board, but it is a generalization. One might end up on lower angle slopes in really deep snow. And that's going to play pretty different than if you're skiing quintessential Alaska terrain in a denser, more supportive snowpack that's sticking to incredibly steep lines. Mm -hmm. So let me throw this back to you. How do we think about like the fact that it isn't just like, quote unquote, pow skiing? I mean, you were just skiing in deep snow in British Columbia earlier this year. Then you were just in Alaska skiing some steeper lines in a more supportive snow type. Now you got to go build skis out there for people. How are you thinking about all these different variables as a designer? Well, I mean, from a design perspective, you really, again, have to just nail down exactly how that ski is going to interact in that snow. And clearly that snow condition is going to be the biggest dictator of what you want to do to it. So, you know, the, the BC, Tree skiing generally, you know, again, a generalization yep. when you're skiing cat operations, you're generally maybe a little bit above tree line, but mostly in, you know, some relatively steep, really deep BC snow. And it's really consistent and it's deep and you just have this really consistent feel. And so from my design lens and my personal experience there, there is a threshold where you just don't want the ski to be too wide. And so for me, that rapture at 122 um, is really the appropriate choice for that BC condition 
So I just don't need as much support. I actually want to be able to get down into the snow a little bit more, you know, appropriately to slow myself down and just get more of that natural soft snow feel. And then moving into this AK experience with everything being above tree line, all this variant snowpacks, the, the wind boarding that happens and adds support, the snow density, so on and so forth. That really just put a whole new lens on it for me um, to really think about really three big design fundamentals and how we can make this ski interact in the most fluid fluid way possible in that type of snow. And those three design fundamentals for me are specifically, you know, the general geometry. So the overall length and shape, you know, what that footprint's going to be, the camber profile, clearly, you know, how we're going to be rockering this, how deep we're going to be going in. Is it going to have any camber? Why would you do that? You know, start thinking about it like that. Um, and then lastly is that flex profile, which is so important to get nailed down so that it gets you at the right elevation in that snow. Right. You know, I think that was, um, you know, again, from a design perspective, something that really stuck out to me when I skied on that K2 Powabunga, um, you know, just six foot two, 220 pound guy suited and booted. I weighed, uh, like 240 before, you know, they measured us out for the, the, the heli. So I'm a heavy person. I'm tall. I've got a, you know, a, a tall lever point and all of those guides are like, you know, this is like really a, a fantastic ski for up here. And as soon as I stood on it, it was so soft for me that I bent it into a U shape and it just stayed there. It didn't come back out of the snowpack for me. It just stayed bent, which just created a plow rather than a plane to pull you up. So that flex uh, profile was really an interesting one that kind of, again, spun it on its head because, you know, wide and soft has always been kind of the general approach for most soft snow skis. And no, you need more dynamic thoughts in how you're going to approach these style of skis. So let me ask you the flip side of that. If POW skis can definitely be too soft, can they be too stiff? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then what what do you think then as a can you generalize? I know we're we're saying kind of across different shapes and rocker profiles and the rest. If um because you know, I got on while we were there, I spent some time on that. Uh, DPS Lotus 138. And that really has a pretty substantial back half. Certainly the, you know, the, the purple version that I was on. Um, talk about what you think would be, you, I think you just described well, like if you go too soft on a Powski and maybe, maybe it's true, the heavier you get, you will start just bowing out that ski to use your term in a way that you're now plowing rather than planing. What do you think a person ought to look out for on going then overly stiff? Right. Well, just to kind of detail that that DPS ski, which I know you and I were kind of A to being and really doing a comparative look at that versus our G-Wagon because it's like similar but drastically different in certain lights. Um, and specifically the biggest variant there, I would say is certainly the, the flex profile. Um, you know, that DPS is stiff. It's very, very stiff, but they made up for it with rocker and shape. So they gave it just a really, really heavy amount of rocker through the tip and tail. I mean, those tip and tail heights were like four centimeters taller than 
um, RG wagon when compared to it. And what that meant yep. was the snow wasn't really hitting, you know, that ski until you were pretty near your binding in the really fat portion of it. And so you weren't really bending the ski in general up there. Um, and it really stayed put and, and interacted well through the snow. So if you do really stiffen the ski up, you're gonna have to account for that in the other ways that you're designing the ski. And in this case, specifically for that one, lots of rocker and lots of taper that just make it so it just stays out of the snow and moves around nicely where you're actually standing on it. So that was certainly interesting. And just to kind of go back to address the original question of, can you go too stiff? Yes. And absolutely. If you don't make up for it in other design paralysis, like what DPS did with that Lotus, you know, you're going to have a really poor performing pow ski. Absolutely. So if you make a very stiff, very wide ski, what you have is a bottom feeder that's just going to find the bottom of that snowpack and the ski is just naturally not going to want to bend at all. So you're just going to get this really, you know, for lack of better terms, boring, you know, unfun experience in soft snow, which is like that should be the best skiing of your life. So you want something that's actually giving you spring and life and making you want to make that next turn, not just having like, you know, kind of this brick underneath your feet that's wide enough to give you some support. It's holding its shape in the snow because it's not going to bend. So there are plenty of skis like that that exist on the market. And you end up finding, you know, honestly, a lot of Freeride World Tour guys are skiing those type of skis in not soft snow. <laughs> you know, it's when they're sending it and it's, you know, a couple inches of soft snow on top of some pretty boilerplate stuff. And they just need that platform for that. But for a soft snow experience in AK or BC or whatever, too stiff, unless you really want to make up for that in other ways, is an absolute, you know, just loser of a ski in my opinion you may have already kind of answered this but let's take the Folsom g wagon and because we were hopping around on a couple mm -hmm. versions of those so let's just take the shape of the g wagon um say you can either use you know with the the flex patterns that we were on in ak um or if most people who order a G wagon are all kind of coming in at a sort of a pretty similar flex pattern on that ski, mm -hmm. what would happen if you did just pretty drastically stiffen that shape up? Mm -hmm. Can you go back into an explanation of what you think would happen to the specific on snow performance? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have built actually a, quite a bit of that ski already over the last what season and a half or two seasons that it's yeah. been commercially available here. Um, and we've done a lot of variant stuff. So depending on the person, the client that we're building it for and what their specific targets are is I have significantly stiffened that ski up. The ones that we were skiing on up there were pretty forgiving and really built yep. out of our somewhat lighter weight you know, build to make a wide, wide ski, not just this heavy, unnecessarily fatiguing thing. And what that did was it did kind of narrow the scope of what that G wagon is good at. And if, you know, I were to sound like a broken record and just keep reminding everybody that Alaska's got a lot of variation throughout the day, throughout the runs, all this different stuff, that G wagon that we were skiing on was sick in soft snow unbelievably. I, I, I feel strongly that there was really nothing that could touch that ski 
in the soft snow. But you have to go cross like a slough path, some kind of windboard that's barely underneath the snow, and you kind of catch that at speed. That G Wagon's gonna get pretty loose. You know, it's not good in that variant condition, and that's a function of it being a relatively soft, heavily rockered ski that's just not intended to grip in those situations. Can an athletic good skier manage it? Absolutely. But, um, you know, stiffening that ski up and maintaining that rocker profile is going to give a really minor reduction in its soft snow performance because it's, it is just fundamentally fat. So, you know, no matter what that ski is going to have some good flotation, especially paired with a heavy rocker. But when you do get into that mixed snow, that ski for me, for sure, I definitely hit some of that stuff. I felt it being pretty slippery and you know, that's, certainly something that was an eye-opener on you know just what if we're kind of levering up that flex profile how we can really just fundamentally change what that ski is capable of doing you know i've got a couple clients that have these g-wagons and they're only their ak skis they were built specifically for these style of trips that we just did and you know, depending on the person, they've been a lot different. You know, a lot of them wound up with a much heavier core profile, you know, something with our denser wood combination. The one that we had up in Aspen, or uh, uh, the one that we had, uh, the two that we had up in Alaska, rather, both had our full Aspen core and kind of our 70-30 configuration on glass carbon, which just lends itself to being, again, lighter, a little bit more forgiving, you know, fundamentally what a deep pal snow sh- ski should be. Some of these other clients I'm doing the poplar bamboo, poplar maple bamboo in certain cases to add that density and add some versatility to what that shape is capable of doing. Um, But to go back and kind of move away from the flex pattern, that shape specifically from a total geometry perspective also has a somewhat narrow scope of what it can do because it does have side cut. It does have a 23 meter radius. So you've got side cut, but that's really only over a pretty short section of that ski. And then it's got that elongated taper in the tip and tail, which effectively gives you less precision and less strength in a ski, no matter what you can really put a lot of, uh, you know, extra stiffness behind it, but it's still not gonna interact in those conditions quite as appropriately as I'd like to see. And this, you know, really our current Rapture, which is the exact opposite. It's it's a full traditional side cut ski. The ones we had up there were just our, our SRC camber profile. A couple of them were built a little bit stiffer. A couple of them were built a little bit softer. But that ski is 12200 foot. Um, so those two skis, I saw a pretty clear hole in between that neither of those really did well and essentially that's what we're going to be developing here real soon is a new we might call it the rapture ak we're not sure what we're going to call it yet (laughs) yeah but it's we keep debating the name on this yeah yeah yeah, i I like rotor is the most uh uh, a current one that Mm. i've been liking because it's pretty specific to a heli ski um, but essentially just taking that rapture and inflating it, taking the exact same, um, you know, design fundamentals of that ski and just bringing it out about a centimeter in total, um, is really going to fill that gap of like, okay, we've got the G wagon for just super soft, you know, not going to be encountering too much variant stuff. 
we've got that rapture for like, hey, we got windboard five inches down. We're gripping and ripping on steep stuff. We need precision. We need flotation. We need strength. And then in the middle, this new Rapture 8K, again, caveat, we don't know what we're going to call it yet, um, you know, to really be able to kind of blend those two a little bit more appropriately, um, which I, I, I'm honestly blown away that I'm having this conversation with you right now because, <laughs> yeah. like, we have so many damn skis in our lineup right now. I never thought I'd be doing another, like, 130-plus ski. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, we yeah. already did the G-Wagon. That thing's, like, plenty. But then I'm like, well, damn it, Alaska. Why do you have to be so unique um, and really, <laughs> like, poke a hole in my my general philosophy and really stir up a whole new idea? Um, yeah. so that was a bit of a deflection from your original question about, uh, flex on the G wagon. No, I, I, I like it. And I, I mean, I want to now, this really is kind of perfect that you in pretty recent history were in British Columbia and you were saying ski and phenomenal conditions there. So did you have, did you have the exact any of the exact same models in BC that you then brought to AK? Um, the only one I didn't was a G wagon. So I oddly enough traveled to to Canada um, to this Kasky op, Kiffer Lake Lodge. The place is fantastic. Check it out, everybody. Um, I traveled there with the same Rapture that I had up in AK. So that big zebra guy. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the 195, you know, deep SRC camber profile, really the sick pow ski. And then I also had a slightly mm-hmm. narrower ski with our giver, which is the longer one is at 114. And then it was built just like that Rapture. And that was kind of my narrow focus up until this AK was like those two skis check every box. And they do, they did up in my BC experience. I didn't want anything bigger. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, we get back home and I'm done with the AK trip. And I'm like, man, I felt undergunned on that, that rapture many times. And I've never said that before. Not once. <laughs> on a, on a 195 centimeter long, 122 millimeter wide, pretty heavily rockered ski. Mm-hmm. You, you're like, I felt I, I could use. I could use more here. And every, everyone on our trip felt that way. We were all had moments where yep. not one time was somebody like, I'm on too much ski now. Yep. Nobody. Yep. Yeah. So trying to help listeners think through, um, now I want to really kind of focus more on cat skiing. And I know mm-hmm. we're talking in generalizations, but if people are willing to accept that, generalization of we're we're looking at a bit lower angle and generally pretty deep snow. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this wider rapture, the 132 millimeter wide rapture, rapture AK or rotor, whatever you end up calling it, do you imagine that ski is one that if people are calling you and they're like, look, I want the dream ski, right? For we're going to go cat skiing and we're going to try to hit like kind of going for the best all time snow, that type of experience. Do you think you'll be talking to them or telling them about the mega rapture to throw in another uh, variation (laughs) on the name? 
Or do you do you think you will be pushing them to just stick with a Rapture? And do you think you will be pushing them to not go with a G-Wagon for lower angle deep snow cat skiing? So, great question. And I always bring this up whenever we're talking. But since we're custom, it's so conditional. It's so conditional to whom I'm talking about and really, or talking with rather, and really, you know, one where their skiing prowess is, you know, if they're really aggressive and getting after it, that's a much different story than somebody that's like, hey, you know, I luckily have the resources to be able to pull this off. This is a bit, you know, I'm going to be over my skis on this one a bit. I'm going to have a different approach to, you know, who I'm or what I'm, I'm, I'm placing underneath these people's feet. So, you know, this larger rapture, let's just call it the rapture AK for now. Um, and, uh, G wagon are really, you know, the two ultra wide skis that are going to live in our, uh, our wheelhouse. And they couldn't be mm-hmm. more different from a general like geometry perspective. And at a high level, I would say that G wagon is going to be the safer choice for somebody that's not as aggressive, that just wants all that mechanical support, you know, something yep. that's just going to get them up in the snowpack, just turn super fluidly and easy. Somebody that's not getting super dynamic and angular in their turns, even while skiing pal, like that ski is just going to give you such a cool experience in that soft snow. And then for somebody else who's like, Hey, look, man, like I'm still relatively young and I want to go send it off of this, this, and this, and I want a ski that's going to work for me in those conditions. It's like, well, cool. I probably am not going to suggest the G wagon for you because it's actually going to get kind of strange. If you're actually sending 30 foot cliffs on it, it's going to be a little bit too supportive. You're not going to get that actual cushion in the snow that you want off this. I would be more inclined to go towards our normal rapture or our AK rapture in that case, again, depending on the person and kind of what they're looking at. But I mean, just for like smile factor and like ease of use in cat skiing, likely, hopefully I'm not wrong about this one, likely most people I'll be pushing towards that G-Wagon just because you're skiing less complex terrain and it's less likely that the guides are going to be like, yeah, go ahead and go over and hit that thing. You know, like that's not terribly common. So, you know, just having that ski that just, you're not going to get fatigued on it nearly as fast. And on these five day, whatever kind of, you know, condensed day trip, I don't care how in shape you are, you're going to get tired. And if you got a ski that's working better for you and just giving you more gas at the end of the day, like, hell yeah, you should do that. And I think that G-Wagon is going to be, you know, kind of more so in that category. In one of the more embarrassing moments um, of this ski season for me, this, it's a it's a funny thing in Alaska, like how off you can be or i can be but paul was saying this happens to him quite a bit too just how off you can be by the scale of things you know and like there'd be times we'd be looking back up at a slope and another skier wasn't coming down yet and it would look like i mean you know that slope would look like it was maybe 500 meters and then someone would drop and be skiing and they were like an ant And it was like, I would think to myself, like, the scale I would have had to actually been imagining here, the 
people would have like had to try because they were actually like 2000 meters away or something. Mm -hmm. I was so off so often Mm -hmm. just with like, like seeing like how long is that slope or whatever. I remember one time just stopping in the middle of a run. There was like nothing happening in front of me. I wasn't stopping to like be like, what's that rollover doing? I just kind of stopped like because I was tired. I was like, I don't think I ever imagined in my life stopping in the middle of a pow run. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> no, so, it's, yeah. It, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was certainly right away. One of the most confusing things for me was just understanding the scale. Um, and that's a lot of components up there. It's, you know, one, you're just above tree line for most of it. So it's just really hard to have some kind of geographical feature that's going to like stick out and you can actually understand it. Um, and you know, everywhere you look out there, it's just these giant, giant mountains and it's, you just can't really tell what you're dealing with. And I think the first instance that I really was like, holy shit was when we were doing that, the, the picture that we were referencing earlier next to the, the swell glacier, we kind of tracked that same line a few times with the heli. Um, and the first time we reloaded and followed back up the line, I was like, holy shit, we're moving at 77 miles per hour in a helicopter following our tracks back to the drop point, And we were flying over that for a while. And I was like, whoa, yeah. how long is that? I checked my watch and I'm like, whoa, that was 2,700 vert. What? Yeah. <laughs> like what? Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, I know we all talked about it, including Paul. He's like, you never get used to it. And it's constantly the thing that'll throw off the, you know, the, the uh, film groups and stuff like that with the athletes that like, I'll send that. And the guy will be like, yeah, right, you will. It's like 180 no, feet long, tall, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. nope. Or it's like, oh, I'll go do that. And it's like, yeah, cool, that's three feet, you know. So it's like your, your <laughs> right. barometer on that is just so far off. And it sounds like after, yeah. what, 10, 11 years of Paul doing this, it doesn't really ever get to center. So, yeah, mm-hmm. for people experiencing yeah, AK he- for the first time, you will be throwing off. Like, the scale is just bonkers. Yeah, he did – to tell that story about athletes like being like i'm gonna go hit that and he's just like no you are not yeah. and uh yeah he's like that's that's an 80 footer um so um yeah pretty wild um any more thoughts about ski design in terms of specific conditions and or specific slopes right thinking about steep slopes versus I, I hope snowcat operators aren't getting mad at me or anything. I mean, I just in my experience, you know, you're not getting on a cat to go ski very steep lines most of the time. And I think these are just two pretty different experiences. So I don't know, design thoughts for skis to work well in very deep snow, um, things that people should be thinking about, whether they're trying to get on steep stuff or lower angle really deep snow, probably in some trees. Yeah, sure. So I think kind of the most obvious thing that we've hit on a couple times here is go bigger than you think, you know, push yourself outside of your comfort zone when it comes to length, for sure. Do not, you know, whether that be a cat or a heli, same applies. Don't go to this operation, whatever it may be and say, 
I ski a 177 and that's as long as I can go. You're wrong. At least go 10 centimeters up from what you're comfortable, at least. Um, you know, and if you, if you ski on 195s all the time, sweet, you got that figured out. But that's a huge, huge, just general fundamental to design that you just need to go much bigger than you thought. Um, same goes for just general width, you know, and uh, I'd say, again, to kind of go back to what I was saying about the G wagon being probably the more common choice for the cat skiing operations that ski in it's just kind of natural interaction in the snow is going to work better on those lower pitch runs, you know, something that's just a little bit lower angle. You've got all that support. It allows you to kind of pick up speed easier, which we found is shockingly hard up in AK in certain times. You're standing on a 30 degree slope going like four miles per hour. Like how is this possible? (laughs) Um, You know, so like that certainly in those lower uh, uh, angle conditions that G-Wagon, something like that is going to be just a much better choice. Um, and then if you're getting into the steep, guess what? Steep stuff slides a lot easier. You're going to be slough mitigating. You're going to be, you know, skiing through other stuff that has slid already, so on and so forth, having something that's going to be just a little bit more traditional from a side cut perspective, certainly big and a heavy rocker profile, no matter what is a a fundamental absolute. Um, and then something that's just going to give you a little bit more precision in those conditions is better, uh, for sure. I think that's kind of how I was looking at uh, shapes kind of like the G-Wagon versus shapes kind of like the Rapture is kind of that lack of precision when you head towards the G-Wagon, which you don't really need for when you're using that scheme for what it's intended for. We haven't talked too much about side cut. Um, Did you have any very specific thoughts on side cut, new thoughts on that? Um, from, from this time, either your recent snowcat trip or this recent AK trip? Well, so again, just to kind of really dissect the two skis in our wheelhouse right now, you know, that Rapture, that Rapture AK, and I guess the, the G wagon, you know, those Raptures live in the same side cut design principle. Those are traditional side cut all the way to the tip and the tail, no taper. It's just a very fundamentally traditional ski, which in certain cases can lend itself to being very demanding. It's something that you got to stand on and turn hard. You got to put a lot of input into that to make it do what it's supposed to do. Go on the far other end of that and you got your G-Wagon, which has got you know a really consolidated amount of side cut right through the middle of the forebody of the ski. And then you've got these elongated tapers through the tips and tails, which inherently give the ski just this much looser touch to the snow and, again, give it kind of a lack of precision there. So, yes, I I was thinking about that a lot, and that's, again, why that Rapture AK really just popped into my head while we're skiing up there. It was like, well, you know, for these type of skiers that want to have, like, you know, a ski that can really check most boxes up in AK that are better, stronger skiers that are looking at the steeper lines and, you know, maybe pushing the envelope on what the guides want to be doing that day, depending on, you know, snow safety and all that good stuff. That rapture with that traditional side cut is just, it's it's a more appropriate choice in that, uh, in that condition. So 
And I've always been a bit of a minimalist when it comes to the taper stuff. Like, you know, let's, let's talk about the G wagon versus that DPS, for example, you know, generally if you put those skis base to base next to each other, they were pretty damn similar from about the binding footprint, a little bit past the binding footprint. It was like the same shape. And then they went bonkers different, (laughs) you know, that DPS just tapered crazy amounts through the tip, you know, to the point where the tip was maybe only 105 millimeters wide in the far tip. It it, it aesthetically looked strange. Um, And I I didn't really do the same thing with that G-Wagon. I did taper, but I kept it really mild so that as it tapered in, you're just getting earlier support in the snowpack right away. So that that snow as it's contacting into the, you know, uh, wider point of that ski and the taper, you're just getting feedback right away. Um, and again, that DPS just had a kind of a different approach to that with doing really heavy rocker to just pull that ski out of the snow. It's created yeah. for some good pictures for DPS because their branding's like eight feet out of the snow. <laughs> <laughs> To to be to be clear, I had not been on a Lotus 138 in some time, and I got back on it for we had a pretty epic afternoon. the 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 light was incredible. The conditions lined up, and I still was really impressed with that ski. It was really interesting to talk to Paul though, because he kept rightly reminding me he's like there have been a lot of iterations of that ski and his favorite is still um i'm just gonna call it the red one i think we laid this out at some point on blister kind of some of the different iterations of the lotus 138 but his favorite version actually maybe the white one the old white one might actually be his favorite if only we had paul on this um but the red one is way more rockered out even than that purple ski I was on. That's actually, uh, he likes that more, even more exaggerated rocker shape, interestingly. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that he did keep talking about is on that Lotus 138, if you're coming over a roller, kind of blind, onto a section where maybe that snow has slid and you're coming into chunder, that ski can get weird mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And if you just, for all the reasons you've been saying, if you look at the shape, it checks out. Mm-hmm. Like that Lotus, and what I keep saying is, that Lotus 138 is a phenomenal ski as long as you are in deep snow, soft snow, can be spring mashed potatoes, but you really need soft snow under it. Because that thing will get loose and weird given everything you've just said about the heavy taper on the tip and tail. And this is what you're saying. The G-Wagon doesn't take as drastic of an approach. And maybe then when you do hit the unexpected stuff, it's still not going to be, as you've said, it's still not going to be the best ski for that. That's maybe drawing more into the rapture territory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you might be less lost than that truly dedicated incredible i would say soft snow ski yeah 100 100 you know i'd say the g-wagon's marginally better for that condition you just laid out of encountering something that's yeah. not ideal over a blind roller but it's still not the right choice for that and 
you know, I would guess that DPS is probably pretty clear with their messaging on that ski as well. It's like, hey, this is a soft snow tool and it's one of the best for these reasons. But if you get it on other stuff, good luck, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, that I'd say our design prowess on that uh, or look rather on that G-Wagon was to try to have a little bit more versatility in what it can do. Um, and again, that's, this is all the stuff that configured really this Rapture AK for me was like, holy shit, stuff changes up there so often. And that's the thing that's just constantly happening to you when you're in AK is you're constantly looking over a blind rollover and you don't know what you're going to get. And, you know, having something that's going to give you a little bit more confidence and a little bit more, um, you know, ability to not get thrown off and spooked is going to help you in a big way. Um i.e. just having a little bit more of a consistent uh, side cut design on a wider ski. Um, but yeah, I, I, that DPS was a pretty wild looking ski and it was cool to watch how it interacted with how, you know, cause I was in front of you on a couple of those runs and I would just really detail exactly where it was living in the snowpack for you. And you really aren't using like, the majority of That's that right. ski at all, <laughs> you know, like at all, mm-hmm. like the tips and tails were just so far out of the snow already. You're just standing in that center section. And that was like the, the most unique thing of looking at that. And then looking at how that G wagon just made connections sooner and picked up into the tips and kind of gave you just a different, a different touch. Now I think we all agreed that both of those skis were really phenomenal for those conditions on that Saturday. Well, I guess it is apparent from this entire conversation that somehow this trip really did turn into a bit of a R and D trip, and um, it was just a, it was a great chance to be in a really pinnacle set of conditions and just thinking through big, wide, powder specific skis. Not in some boardroom, but doing it um, truly in the field. And um, I don't know, talk a little bit more about, um, I, I don't know, some of the, maybe the conversations you had with CPG during that and kind of that that part of this trip. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Actually, really well put there that that was certainly the most significant soft snow education on design that I've ever had. And we were lucky enough to be paired with a group up there, two Gutch powder guides that have been at it for a very long time and have really seen everything. And what that has, you know, lended itself to is having a lot of really well-educated guides that have like seen everything and they've tried all this different product. It's clear in their hangar. They've got hundreds of soft snow skis there of all kinds of different manufacturers and they all have pretty clear opinions on all of them for different reasons. And for me to have this opportunity to really see one, like clearly one of the most variant weeks that they had ever seen in, in, in recent yeah. future, they, they brought that up many times. Um, you know, it was a good experience for me to have these conversations with these guys and really learn, you know, what they've liked, what they've disliked, tried to understand why giving them some little nuggets of information that have maybe you know, given them a different look at it, you know, specifically yeah. like that K2 Powabunga. I think by the end of that, all those guys were like, oh, that's why that ski is doing that is because it's too soft. I get it now, you know, and that just was never pointed out to them. So, 
you know, through the course of this trip and building these relationships and really understanding, you know, what that operation needs, it was a, a clear shoe in for us to be like, hey, look, we'd really love to work with you. We'd really, really love to, you know, set your group up and build some demos for your clients to really just give everybody the best experience possible and give you input on how you want these things to be configured year over year. And so it's pretty exciting for us at Folsom to, to, you know, make this partnership and be able to announce that we're going to be working with Chugach Powder Guides to, you know, for what I hope is to, you know, build some of the best powder skis ever built with their help over many years here. So it's, it's pretty exciting to, you know, have that opportunity. And, and, you know, again, I don't have to theorize these skis where I'm sitting right now at my boardroom table. I can do it in the field with this group of really, really, you know, senior people that have been doing this for years and years and years and have tried every soft snow on the market. Um, so it's, it's damn exciting for us, um, to really, you know, have this opportunity and start developing some really cool stuff for them. Bottom line, give some of their clients just a better experience out there as well. A lot of good people in that operation. And um, as you were talking, I was just thinking, actually, you know, on the down days when we were just skiing the ski area. Down days. And we were all, <laughs> we yeah, quote unquote down days. And we were all just having a blast. And I think that's one of my favorite things um, about the group we had out there. Honestly, ultimately, everyone was so psyched to just be clicked into skis and making turns. And sometimes that was out of a snowcat. Sometimes that was inbound. Sometimes that was out of a helicopter. But I think it is 100% accurate to say that the guides of CPG, everybody we had out there, first and foremost, people are just stoked to be skiing, you know? And I appreciate that. I um, We give Paul a lot of crap about, you know, he never has to ski the hard you know, moguls of Crested Butte and, and hit all the rocks and stuff. But he loves that stuff, too. There's a reason he keeps leaving Alaska to come to the Blister Summit, right? right? It's different. It's different types of skiing. And I think like, I hate to use the phrase real skiers, but I think passionate skiers, you like all of it. And it's all interesting. And it's all it, and it can present new challenges. And that all makes it like the best. And uh, it it is definitely not the case that CPG guides are just like these powder snobs out there who like aren't, who aren't who aren't going skiing unless everything aligns just correctly. And uh, it was fun getting to see that firsthand and skiing around with some of these guys and girls and and um, really really was a cool thing to experience firsthand. Yeah, well, to that point, like sometimes you can sense when the fire has been kind of lost for mm. certain people. And I, I yeah. can say that wasn't even kind of the case for any of those, no. those folks. I mean, it was like, yeah, let's go shred Alaska and let's go grab a fizz. This is great. Let's go, man. Yeah. Let's go. And it was like, hell yeah. I love this, you know, because it, it, it helps keep you excited as well. Um, which is another, just like cherry on top for that operation. It's just like, there's no down days. There's literally no down days. Mm -hmm. So you're not just relegated to sitting in a lodge and, what, what was this the saying they said drinking yourself blue or drinking it blue <laughs> drinking it blue, Paul, right. Paul said I thought that was pretty hilarious but yeah there's no down days there so you're just you know having some different experiences and everybody was just happy to be doing it including all of us 
Every single one yeah, of us, absolutely. every single day, there was a huge shit eating grin on all of our faces at the end of the day. <laughs> all right, man, I should um, let you get back to work at some point here. But before I let you go, we do this segment called Crashes and Close Calls. And uh, we started doing this to continue to just raise some awareness about this blister insurance coverage we have where people can become a blister member, but also be covered when, not really if, but when you get hurt skiing or snowboarding or mountain biking, et cetera, doing all the things we do. So um, we'll include a link to that in the show notes of this episode for people who need to learn more about this if you have not checked this out already. But this also has led to this fun segment where I get to just ask people about some of their worst crashes or funniest crashes or closest calls. So what do you got for us? Well, here you go. I've got probably the best cautionary tale for go ahead and move forward with spot because about seven or eight years ago, I was uninsured for this and it was painful. Um, both from a physicality, but mostly from a monetary piece. Um, so this was, I think seven or eight years ago when I blew my Achilles on skis and the crash oh itself was brutal. So essentially what happened was I was skiing Aspen and as I do a lot and at the bottom of Ajax, right before you get to the final groomer, everything consolidates down to this really fast catwalk. And then it takes a really hard left and that's called the Kleenex corner. And if you just go straight off of it, it uh -huh. turns into this rocky, you know, never snow on it, steep pitch called Niagara. And of course, I know all the locals up there, they're all really rad skiers and they carve out all these little natural jumps all over the mountain. And so throughout that day on the edge of Kleenex Corner, we had this little lip stepped into the, the catwalk and we were able to come nuking through Kleenex Corner and air into Niagara and you'd kind of clear the first couple bumps and hit this sick transition and you'd be just ripping out of there. And so, you know, of course... End of the day, last run. I'm shredding down and I'm behind one of my ski companions that day. He hits it, goes a little bit right. I hit it how I had been hitting it all day long. And either a ski patrol or somebody else moved a bamboo marker pole right in the landing. And so I come motoring over this. I'm in the air and I see a bamboo pole exactly in front of me. I hit it. I land on it in such a perfect way that it's like somebody just ripped the rug out from underneath me and I'm just all of a sudden tomahawking down. I don't release out of my bindings. I hear this brutal loud snap. And <sighs> when the dust settles after literally like eight or 10 tomahawks, I'm just like expecting a broken ski because it literally sounded like a two by four snapped in half right next, you know, right next to me. And I was like, Oh man, I definitely broke my skis. And then I'm like, uh Oh, it's really hot in my left boot. That's not a good sign. Oh, no. And so oh, no. I reach down to my left leg and I feel, you know, above the cuff in my calf and I feel this rock hard bump up there. And so my head just immediately is like, I just had a lower leg break. I just snapped my tip fib. I got the bone sticking into my muscle here. Like, oh shit, you know, get me a toboggan, get me out of here. 
So all that happens, I get carted over to Aspen Valley Medical. You know, they take the boot off my foot. My foot just flops out of my my boot because the Achilles is completely gone. And the doc looks at me and I'm like, pretty sure I got a lower leg break. You know, and he's like, feels the back of my leg and feels my Achilles where it used to be. And he's like, no, this is considerably worse. You have a fully blown Achilles tendon. Um, you know, you're going to be going into surgery later tonight. And I was like, ah, shit. So sorry about hitting the table there. <laughs> um, but, uh, long story short, terrible injury, terrible experience, an extra punch in the gut, uninsured, you know, self-employed, pretty young in this business, just thinking like an idiot, wasn't insured, had to go traverse that entire thing you know, emergency surgery, ambulance ride, blah, 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 all this PT stuff, all out of pocket. And boy, was that terrible. It was a terrible, terrible experience. So there's your cautionary tale. <laughs> My God. So the way this would have worked, if at that time you would have had that injury, you're uninsured with this blister plus spot insurance, you don't actually have to have insurance for it to work. Um, so you would have gotten $25,000 of coverage to put toward that injury. And that could go toward getting you off the mountain or if you if somebody had to be heli-vacked off or something like that. And so you get at least $25,000 worth of coverage. And then the way too, if somebody does have insurance, but like most everybody I know has a really high deductible, this blister plus spot coverage will cover your deductible. So you will pay, you would have paid zero for that incident. And yeah, so that's why we care a lot about this because we are all doing things that are somewhat questionable. The only thing about your story, Mike, is at least you were kind of doing something cool. Most of the accident stories on here, we were all doing things that were decidedly not cool. Like we were done <laughs> doing the cool thing. And then like on the like run out to the road got completely broken. Yeah. So it's not if, if somebody listening was like, well, I'm not going to be getting rowdy. So I don't need to worry about this. Most of the stories and anecdotes we've heard that people weren't doing anything rowdy. So <laughs> it's coming for all of us. Oh, we love man. these things. We're we're not going to quit them, but it's coming for all of us. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> well, yeah. It was at least it was a cool and it's a good story. I mean, it it is always the latter that you just said. It's always like when you're done walking to the car and you slip in the parking lot and <laughs> smash yourself. It's like not what you know. Yeah. What story are you going to make up? At least I didn't have to make up a story there. It actually had some uh, you know pretty gnarly. Uh, uh, you know, actions that ended up with me in a hospital bed <laughs> and out of pocket, All right, a, let's, a huge amount of cash. So as we like to say, when you wreck, don't get wrecked twice. That's kind <laughs> of our, our message to everybody. Um, all right, let's end this on a happier note with our, what we're celebrating segment. You got anything? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so I turned 40 the day before we went to Alaska. So we got there April 8th. I turned 40 April 7th. And holy shit, what a way to spend the first <laughs> week of being 40 is in just the mecca of skiing with great people, just learning all this stuff that we just talked about. And... Hmm. 
really just making me feel unbelievably thankful and fortunate for where I'm at and that I can do these things and get these life experiences, uh, you know, while my body's still cooperating. So that was good. Another thing to note on my 40th was my wife pretty much erased a year off of my life by uh, giving me the best uh, surprise birthday party actually at my facility. Oh, right. The weekend You before. mentioned this. Yeah. It, it literally, I was so shocked. Um, I never really had a surprise party ever. And, um, she was very, very nonchalant about what was going on that day. I was just like, I have one small surprise for you, you know, whatever, just, you know, here's what to expect. And she literally made me wear a blindfold as soon as I got in the car. So at that point I was kind of like, uh Oh, like what's going on here. And, I just, you know, if I trust somebody, I trust them. And so I don't really question them that much. And I was just like, oh, whatever. We're just going to like maybe a super cross event that was happening in Denver at the time. And of course, she drives me to my shop, blindfolded on, and walks me out with the blindfold on in front of one of the back garages. And the garage is open and, you know, 75, 100 of my closest friends are in there. And of course, I take the blindfold off and boom, surprise, my heart's thumping. I just, I honestly was not even kind of prepared for this. On top of that, she had this sick 80s band, like a cover band, ripping in the background with one of my favorite songs, which you figured this out on the trip, Money for Nothing, Dire Straits, baby, that was shredding as I was walking in, that guitar hit. And then my brother, who lives in a different state, who I don't get to see very much, he lives in Vermont, comes walking out to that song. And I'm just like, my, my brain was just melting and I couldn't even like talk to anybody. <laughs> so those two things, you know, the surprise party of just feeling super great there, heading up to AK, spending my first week in my 40s with all these wonderful people having this experience. I couldn't feel more fortunate. Hmm. That's great. Well, hey, man, I'm going to let you get back to it. But um, really cool to kind of debrief and sort of circle back here on on a, a lot of the infield conversations we were having and um yeah and i'm gonna go them. skiing and like yeah and and relive them i'm actually i'm gonna go skiing now i'm so happy it's still snowing here in crested butte so i'm gonna go tour in like an hour and i because i was about to i was getting like nostalgic for next ski season already from this conversation but i'm like no no wait i'm gonna actually go do that like in an hour so uh i'm I'm very happy to still be making turns around here but um that was a really special time and uh i i think we should probably do it again sometime yep yep that is uh 100 <laughs> that's happening again yeah okay yep. uh we'll 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 talk about that more uh very soon so anyway uh Thanks for the time, man. And uh, yeah, take care. Talk to you soon. Awesome. Sounds good, man. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Mike for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And just a reminder, if you like the sound of some of the skis that we talked about here today, well... Blister members get a discount on all Folsom skis, so if you're liking the sound of the Rapture or the Rapture AK or the G-Wagon, well, become a Blister member and get your discount before you pull the trigger on that order. 
And if you're all set with skis for the time being, well, Blister members also get discounts on a ton of other gear from a ton of other brands. So you can find all those discounts listed in the member info section on our website. You'll find that on the navigation bar. So if you're not already a Blister member, check that out and see just how much money you can save on new gear with a Blister membership. All right, everybody, that is all for now. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to you this Monday over on our Blister podcast, where we've got a very special guest with you. You are not going to want to miss that show. All right, take care. Talk to you on Monday.